Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Well, good morning. How's everybody? So I'll let you into my weird psyche probably a couple times during this message today. We're singing the song earlier that goes, So let my words be few, and all I can think about is, Oh, crud, I've got to preach. How am I going to live that one out? I'm weird sometimes. So there's a story told, uh, this may be weird to you too, about a guy sitting at a bar, staring at his drink for half an hour, an hour, not touching it, just staring at it. And up walks this big, rough-looking biker dude that just everybody would look at and go, oh, that looks like one mean dude. And he grabs his drink and he gulps it down in one swig. And the guy sitting there staring at his drink just is dumbfounded, and all of a sudden he just breaks out sobbing, crying. And the big biker dude is really just a softy at heart. says, oh, come on, man, I was just giving you a hard time. I can't stand seeing a man cry. And the guy goes on and sitting at the, sitting at the down, he says, this is the worst day of my life. I can't do anything right. I slept too late this morning and I missed an important meeting and my boss fired me and I went out to the parking garage to find my car was stolen and I don't have any insurance. And I got a cab home and then after the cab left, I realized I left my wallet in the back of the cab. And and then I went inside and my wife, I found her cheating on me with the gardener and the dog bit me and I came here trying to get up the trying to get up the mustard to kill myself and you came and drank the poison. I don't tell very many corny jokes, and that's probably the reason why. <laughs> so there are a lot of intentions we have in life and a lot of unintended consequences. See, it does fit with our topic today. We're talking about unintended consequences. And a lot of times in uh, economics, if you studied economics, they talk a lot about the law of unintended consequences. For instance, in the 1920s when prohibition came out, this has been a case study of unintended consequences, there were lots of expectations. People thought, oh man, prohibition comes in, we're going to have candy sales and gum sales go through the roof and there's going to be a lot of other things that they don't spend their money on beer and alcohol on, so they're going to spend money on this and the economy is going to grow in some areas and almost none of that stuff happened. And then the intention, the core intention of it was that many families would experience less difficulty from abuse of alcohol. But there were a lot of unintended consequences that sprung up. In fact, uh, pharmacies, if you didn't know this, sprung up everywhere. Why? Because pharmacists could legally prescribe whiskey to anybody for almost any ailment. So they multiplied. In fact, did you know the membership in churches went up and a lot of people became rabbis and pastors, especially in the churches that had wine for communion because they could legally buy it and then dispense it. And they got into religion for the purposes of alcohol. Unregulated stills and black market stills uh, uh, became very popular, resulting actually in more people dying from alcohol poisoning than before because of tainted liquor. The tax system in the United States changed in almost every state. For example, New York City, before Prohibition, 75% of taxes were from alcohol tax. Well, that went away. So they replaced it with the income tax. And since then, income tax has become the primary way the state taxes this. The federal government lost $11 billion in taxes during this time frame and had $300 million extra in enforcement costs because now, all of a sudden, many previously law-abiding citizens were criminals. And 
the courts got so backlogged that in May courts, it took a year and a half to have your simple arrest for alcohol processed. And so, to solve this, the plea bargain, which had hardly ever been used before in the justice system, became a common factor in our justice system just to relieve the backlog and has been used at a larger proportion of cases since then. It changed our justice system as well. Good intentions, but lots of unintended consequences. We even see it in the church. The churches that uh, preach that alcohol is to be completely abstained from, that it's evil, actually have a higher rate of obesity studies have shown. Why is that? Well, the hypothesis is that most people go home and drink a glass of wine to soothe themselves in the evening. But if you believe that you can't do that, you go home and eat high-calorie snacks and you put on weight. It's a study that's been around a couple times in the last couple, couple decades. Interesting, isn't it? Good intentions, unintended consequences. We see it in our parenting. We see it in our schools, don't we? We want the best for our kids. And so we push them to take honors courses and AP courses. And, and our kids end up with negative consequences psychologically because of too much stress all too often. Sometimes even the best of our intentions have unintended consequences, don't they? And then there are times in life when we end up with unintended consequences simply because we end up in a rut or a routine that we realize years later we've drifted apart in our marriage or we realize our dream for our business or our dream for our retirement is no longer possible. Why? Just because we did not stay intentional about life. Unintended consequences occur for all of us because of two reasons. We either don't go deep enough in understanding how everything is connected and how one thing affects so many others, or we just get stuck in ruts and we lose intentionality in the way we approach growth and our life. The past two weeks we've been talking about uh, how Paul teaches us that lasting change occurs in our lives. And Paul has taught us the last few weeks that it doesn't change by starting with dealing with moral and behavioral issues. It starts at the heart level. Because so often we just resort only to the, the moral and behavioral level, don't we? Our kids aren't performing well, so we create rule, rules to shape their behavior. Uh, we're not doing that well at work in an area, so we grab a book and we learn a new skill for our tool chest. We learn how to have difficult conversations better, or we learn how to manage our time better, or, and, and, and we try to solve problems that way. Or, or for some, when we run into difficulties with our family, we decide we're going to had a new behavior. We're going to go back to church or we're going to go listen to messages on three ways to have a happier, healthier family and marriage, right? And learn a few new behaviors. But as Wendy pointed out last week in her message, we can have all the knowledge in the world and we can even know all the right things to do, but it doesn't necessarily make us lose our temper less often. Change, Paul says, starts by changing our very identity. He uses a term putting off and putting on, much like intentionally taking off clothes and putting on, except he says we have to put off an old self and put on a new self, put off an old identity and put on a new identity. We need to change at the level of our heart, at the level of our motivation, at the, at the core level of the patterns of our thinking have to change. Now that said, Paul doesn't ignore the whole moral and behavioral change. In fact, in today's text, he actually gives us an inventory of moral behaviors 
But he does it in a way where every moral behavior he attaches the intent or the heart change that he wants us to look at to it as well. It's in a sense his giving us this intentional tool that we can go through as an inventory so we can be purposeful about our growth and therefore achieve intended consequences. Let's take a look at the text. Uh, Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25, and it reads this way. It says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Now, we're going to look at this text, and first I'll just give, a, give you a quick summary of the inventory as Paul presents it in order, and then we're going to look at it a little bit more deeply, but I'm going to chunk a few of the ideas together as we go. So he gives us this moral command, and then he gives us this heart intent. He first says, put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Why? Because we are members of one body. And then he says, in anger, do not sin. Why? Because we need to remain free of the devil's destructive influence in our life. He says, don't steal any longer and don't be be useless, don't be lazy, work so you can be generous to those in need. He says, don't have unwholesome talk, only talk that which is helpful to build others up according to their needs. He says, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, every form of madness, that too, malice. Um, be kind and compassionate, forgiving, just as Jesus forgave you is the intent. And then he says, no hint have no hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed. And he says, because we're God's holy people. And finally, he says, don't have any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. And he says, instead, thanksgiving. Now, we're going to look a little more depth at that in just a moment. But first, what is Paul's central point in all of this? He starts his text out by saying, therefore, which means he's starting to apply what he said before this. And what he said before this is what we referred to either earlier, putting off and putting on the new self. He's giving us practical application as to how to walk this out. But the central point of what he's trying to make is actually found in verse 30 where he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So here's what he's saying to us. He's saying, God is your father leading you into growth and change. When you decide not to engage what he's leading you into, like any father with their kid, it makes him sad. 
still loves you. But when we resist him, it makes his reparenting of us, his redemption, his restoration of us difficult and sad because of our resistance. And so he's inviting us, Paul's telling us, I'm, I'm, invi- I'm inviting you to develop a habit of engaging with the Holy Spirit in putting off and putting on of change that makes God's reparenting of you an easy task and a joy to him. Now, that carries some baggage with it sometimes for us because we have this relational nuance that we get wrong when the Bible starts talking about pleasing God or grieving God. Because when we hear those terms, we think about it in terms of, well, I've got to perform to get moral brownie points and I've got to earn my love. But that's not at all what the Bible's talking about when it talks about pleasing or grieving God. It really is more about our simple responsiveness to the relationship with Him. Are we responsive to Him? And do we open our heart to the Holy Spirit? So before we dive in today to the moral inventory and our heart check, I just want to pause and I just want all of us together as I pray just to say, God, we just open our hearts. Lord, we do. We come to You and we open our hearts to You and ask, Lord, that this would not just be something religious about do's and don'ts, but that you would truly come to us right now as we know you're here already. We've sensed your presence and so we're so grateful for you being here. Would you just come to us and would you change us at a heart level because of our experience with you and learning to take on the identity that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. So... <clears throat> Paul starts the inventory by talking about putting off falsehood, right? And speaking truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. He immediately puts this whole thing not so much in the context of right and wrong, but in the context of relationship, that we are all members of of one body, which posed the questions for us, why would we ever speak falsely to our own body? Why would we ever not be open, not be honest, not be truthful, not be self-revealing of the good and the bad and everything about ourselves to those around us who are part of Christ's body? If there's any dysfunction in in our relationships, I mean, what good is it to hide it, to speak as if it doesn't exist, to avoid it out of fear for, oh, maybe the conversation won't go well, we're part of the same body to speak falsely to one another when we hide stuff and say, you know, somebody asks us how are things and we say fine when they're not. It's, it just doesn't make sense. And Paul anticipates when he introduces that idea, the next problem we're going to face when he says this. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sin, the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. And the question in tying those together becomes this. What is the anger behind the reason you hide or speak falsely or don't deal directly with the truth? Because the issue is the longer we hold that in, the longer we hold on to it, the greater chance, Paul says, that the devil and evil gets a foothold in our life. I mean, how can our heart be clean if we continue to stuff junk inside it instead of dealing with it openly and honestly with others. Paul expands the idea of this whole concept in verse 31. He says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice or malintent. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, I find this to be 
an interesting string of words that Paul flips together back and forth. He goes between this inward heart reflection and this outward action. Inward heart is bitterness, rage, anger, and malice. And outward action he talks about is brawling and slander. And I, I know that few of us probably would own the fact that we are brawling people, and fewer of us would probably say we're bitter people. But undealt with anger, covering over stuff, not speaking truthfully about stuff with other people leads to bitterness. And it's something we hold on to. And why is bitterness and anger something we hold on to? Well, there's a parable that actually is a Jewish parable that predates Jesus, was popular in Jesus' day, uh, that I think illustrates what Paul's talking about really well. The parable is titled, The Rabbi and the Exceedingly Ugly Man. And this is how it goes. On one occasion, it says, Rabbi Eliezer was coming home from the house of his teacher, and he was riding his donkey leisurely along the river, having a wonderful day, happy and elated that he had studied the law of God so much that day. And on the way home, he chanced to meet a very ugly, exceedingly ugly man who greeted him, saying, Peace be upon you, Rabbi. He, however, did not return his greeting, but instead said to him, said to him You empty, good-for-nothing, how ugly you are! Is everyone from your town as ugly as you are? And the man replied, I do not know, but go and tell the craftsman who made me how ugly is the vessel which you have made. When Rabbi Eliezer realized that he had sinned, he dismounted his donkey, bowed to the ground, and said, I humbly submit myself and please, please forgive me. This parable teaches us Similar lessons to what Paul is teaching us. When we find ourselves wanting to demean another person, to put them down verbally, to verbally brawl or debate with someone, there is underlying anger or bitterness or malice in our heart because we have not changed the old self, the old identity, for the new identity. You see, the the exceedingly ugly man had so settled the sense of identity, he had so deeply realized that he was a child of God designed for a good purpose that he had no desire when the rabbi said that to him to have any kind of physical or verbal brawling with him at all, which is really amazing because if we understand who the rabbi was in that day, the rabbi was not just the preacher. He was the university professor. He was the lawyer. He was the judge. He was the politician all wrapped in one. This is the person who is most respected, most authoritative in that culture. And yet in the face of that kind of authority, this man's identity was so completely settled that he had no need to respond with any kind of verbal or physical brawling. Instead, contented, measured, winsome speaking the truth in love resulted in appropriate conviction and restoration of relationship. How might God want you to look at the pattern of brawling, argumentative thought patterns that you sometimes have run through your mind? And identify the bitterness or the malintent of your heart that you are covering over because you have not yet fully realized how deeply loved and fully accepted you are. See, it doesn't matter who it is. What Paul is teaching us here, if it's a follower of Jesus that you're frustrated with, that you're wanting to argue with, they're part of your body. Why would you ever want to fight with yourself? 
And even if the person isn't part of the body of Christ yet, they haven't made a decision to follow, even if there's somebody that you violently disagree with, they're a, they're a political leader or a colleague or a difficult teacher or a bad coach who's mistreating your kids or, a, or, or for that matter, a horrible criminal, there's still a person that God desires to bring into the body of Christ to make one with you. Why would we respond to them with verbal debate and brawling? It's because our hearts haven't changed. It's because there's an identity of self and love and acceptance that we have not accepted yet from Christ that he wants us to so that we can respond in measured, loving, patient ways and win the hearts of the people we disagree with and their followers. Paul goes on in the inventory and he says this, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, since the majority of us are not thieves, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to us? I mean, let's ask this question. What do you feel you are entitled to that you don't have? Or maybe better yet, how are you holding on to things rather than being generous because you feel you are entitled to this standard of living. God's whole intent when he speaks to us around the issue of money and material things in our heart is to free us from those desires and free us from those fears and those worries so that we can be givers, not takers, that we can be philanthropists, not hoarders, because that's what a joyful, free heart does, and that's what he wants us to experience. Paul continues the moral heart inventory connection by saying this. He says, There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. The term he uses there, the, the original Greek word is for sexual immorality is pornea, and it's the word from which we get pornography. In Paul's day, when he's writing this, uh, if we understand it in that context, which is the appropriate way to do it, there's actually really absolutely no debate to what he's referring to. What he's referring to here is any sexually charged activity outside of marriage, whether it's adultery, whether it's sex before marriage, whether it's uh, physical contact of our sexual organs before marriage with someone, or pornography, or lust of another person. He's referring to all of that. And I find it interesting, the heart side of this that he pairs with this is this term God's holy people, which I think is something that we would easily misunderstand. When we hear God's holy people, the first thing that comes to many of our minds is a super-performing, religiously moral person who's overly religious, right? And certainly holiness has a moral element to it, but that's not the core meaning. Holiness at its core meaning is to be set apart to be treasured, to be flawless, to be spotless, amazingly, stunningly beautiful, all that is good and right about life and blessing in the world. It's really an extension of the idea that we as human beings are created in the image of God and how magnificent and splendor, uh, full of splendor that is. And Paul, again, interestingly, does something that he did a little bit earlier in Ephesians as well. He, he attaches with sexual immorality, greed, and impurity. And what he's saying to us is that we can so easily become stained and corrupted by the drives in these areas. 
we try to get to this place and we try to look at sex and, and, and acquiring of things to make us feel good, to make us feel secure, to make us feel alive. And they're really lesser images and corruptions of what God's really calling us to. I mean, we all know, right, the power of sex. Sex is a powerful drive. Sex sells. And probably the second greatest drive is the power of greed, the two most powerful drives on earth. And Paul's giving us here an inventory moment to check our hearts. And he's saying, is there even a hint, a hint of sexual immorality or a hint of greed or avarice, the need to constantly have this standard or move up to the next standard and keep moving up. This, that's the greed of the avarice in our life. Because even opening the door slightly, a hint, he's saying, can drive us to need more and more and more like a drug that never quite gives us the fix we want it to give us. So that begs a question. How far do we take this? I mean can't watch hardly anything nowadays without having a hint of sex, right? I mean, it's so difficult to see anything. I'm not going to tell you how far you should take it today. And Paul doesn't actually go into that level of detail either. And I think he doesn't for a purpose because he wants, as the text says, he wants you to invite the Holy Spirit into your heart to help you set those boundaries for yourself because it's all about a relationship. So lately... I've been enjoying watching a new series on AMC called Turn. And Turn is uh, loosely, I'm sure, as Hollywood is very, very loosely based upon the first spy ring in the Revolutionary War. And it's been kind of an interesting story to follow. But there's two main characters in this. And both of those two main characters were at one time committed to be married to each other, verbally committed to be married to each other. But as the story goes, their families wanted them to marry someone else. So they ended up breaking up and marrying other really wonderful, beautiful, fantastic people. But, you know, that sets up the obvious tension that Hollywood wants. Those two never lost their love for each other. And there's this tension going on throughout this series where they weave the yarn in a way that makes me, as I watch it, almost want to cheer for them to still get together again, even though it is adultery and the destruction of a family and hurting innocent children. Hollywood makes the yarn make you want that. Ask yourself when I watch or read too much of this kind of sexual innuendo, wherever it comes from, what do I notice about my heart, my thoughts, my fantasies, my desires in life? Does what I'm watching lead me to the beauty and the splendor that God intends for love to be faithful, vibrant, lasting, strong? Or does it lead me to another place? See, our hearts are like computers, garbage in and garbage out. What do we do to protect our hearts so that we will realize the full beauty of the treasure of holiness that God wants us to experience? What are the topics? What about the topics of your conversation? One of the most memorable, meaningful confrontations that God ever did in my life was uh, many years ago, a friend, Randy and I. Uh, I was 19 at the time. Randy was 24. He was a farmer. I was a hired hand for him during the day, and he worked for me in the evening as I coached the softball team, and he played third base while I played shortstop. We were great friends. We were both in church together. He had uh, inherited his uh, leadership of his farm when his dad suddenly died at age 19. He was now 24, married, and had a couple of kids. 
We were out and about in summers, and summers are hot. And in the 1970s, what was popular? Everybody remember the 1970s? Sorry, that kind of dates me. Tube tops, right? Women were wearing tube tops all the time around, and we would drive around, and Randy would look and see, and he would kind of ogle, and he would kind of make comments about how sexy and beautiful and hot they were. And he'd even do this with his wife in the car in kind of a teasing manner. At least he thought it was a tease. I'd sit next to him in the car. I didn't, be, I didn't think that was appropriate. I was trying to appropriately restrain those things as a young man, and I wouldn't say anything, and I wouldn't laugh, I wouldn't participate, but I didn't say anything. And I remember one evening in church, we were having a special meeting, about 75 people there, 100 people there, and all of a sudden God's conviction comes on Randy, and he stands up right in the middle of the whole group and turns around and says, i got to confess, I have had a bad habit of giving lots of hints and going down the route of teasing about sexual things. And it has taken my thoughts in a wrong pattern and has done tremendous damage to my marriage. And then he turns to me and he says, And Ross, you're my friend and you were there and you didn't say a thing even though you knew it was hurting me and you knew it was hurting my marriage. You see, sex, sexual innuendo, hurts our hearts. It's not just innocuous fun. It's not just joking. It's not just a physical thing. Randy's wife was struggling, now on kid number two, with the idea that I could never be lovable unless I can keep the body of these teenage girls. And whether it's women that we're looking at or whether it's pornography, that kind of activity drives men to selfishness to treat women as objects for our own pleasure rather than as creations in the beautiful image of God. And it's not just a men's issue. Women, how do romance shows and even though uh, and romance novels and even though you're less susceptible to temptation from pictures, how do pictures of hot men taint your heart and make love and sex and relationships something that is less than you desire? Less freedom than you wish was there. Less beauty. You see, my sin with Randy was that I was not a friend to him. I allowed a hint to grow into further destruction. And I think that's the reason Paul sets this, this, this discussion in Ephesians right smack dab in the middle of his discussion as to what healthy church is, what healthy relationships are. We have to be together in this, helping each other, not go down these paths of hints that take us in the wrong direction. Paul goes on and talks about what comes out of our mouth as an inventory. We're going to combine verse 29 in chapter 4 and verse 4 in chapter 5 in this one. It says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Now, this is... Uh, kind of an interesting thing. Maybe I'm weird on this. This is revealing my weird thoughts and psyche to you, but I find it interesting from a language standpoint as to why certain words are swear words or obscene and why other words are not. Does anybody else ever think about that? I mean, take for an example. Yeah, yeah, you think that? So take, for example, the word S-H-I-T. I know I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it because we consider that swearing. But people who say that's swearing will easily go through life and say things like, I hear them, they'll say, oh, poop. But they can't say, 
S-H-I-T. We can say bowel movement. We can say bodily excretion. We can say cow patty. We can say fecal matter. We can say lots of other things, but we can't say S-H-I-T. Why is one word obscene, swearing, and another word not? I mean, uh, certainly, there are a few swear words that are clearly descriptive of dehumanizing behavior. We, We get that. We understand why those are. But I think the difference between acceptable and obscene is typically defined by culture based upon the heart behind it. That's the reason I find it really interesting, really fascinating, Paul's words that he uses as the flip side heart of this issue. In the first instance, he says, I want your words to be beneficial to the people you are talking to or talking about. It must be building them up. But the second one is really curious to me. It's kind of strange. He says, I want you to have thanksgiving. It's kind of strange. I can see the unselfish, building other people up type of thing, but, but, but Thanksgiving. So this past Monday at the end of staff meeting, we took some time for some listening prayer as a staff, just trying to be quiet to see if God would speak anything to us. And, and I felt like uh, he spoke to me, whether it was for the whole staff or not, he, I felt like he spoke to me to check the expectancy of my heart. Um, did I expect joy in the process of getting to the promises he's given. I have no doubt God's going to do great things through all of our lives and have bring success and things. That's not the issue. But what do I expect along the way? Do I expect it to be heavy? Do I expect it to be tiring? Do I expect there to be huge disappointments along the way? What's the expectation in my heart? And then as, as I was reading this passage, I got it. I got it. If, a heart, if our heart is full of thanksgiving, then obscenity is not an issue. We have this expectation for good. So when something bad happens, when something difficult happens, when the car breaks down or my computer goes bad or I I have an unexpected expense in my budget that I wasn't happening because of something breaking down, I'm not tempted to swear because my heart is what? My heart is expecting provision. It's expecting thanksgiving. You see, the presence of obscenities in our language is evidence of the expectancy of our heart. The presence of obscenities in our language is evidence of the expectancy of our hearts. Again, don't confuse this with optimism. Many of you are optimists about you're going to achieve the goals, you're going to win, you're going to succeed. That's not the issue. But we can go through life even expecting to win and achieve with the weight of difficulty or tiredness and bitterness that can get in our hearts and cause us to expect life along the way, I won't say it, I'll just say, to be poopy. So we find ourselves responding with profanity, even when things are not so bad. Our heart expectation is in line with it, so we respond that way. Now, this is not a prudish conversation. This is a conversation about our heart. And Jesus says in Luke 6.45, he says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, good in, good out. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, garbage in, garbage out. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Is your heart full of yourself? Your own self-justification? your own measure of identity based upon your own measure of success? Where's your heart identity found? Or is it found in God's secure 
love and that you're his child. See, Jesus and Paul are saying this new self that we put on is full of security. It's full of hope. It's full of all the power we would ever need to face any circumstance regardless of what's happening in it and expect a positive direction to come out of it in life. And if that's the identity of your heart, your heart will be full of expectancy and thanksgiving. And when the car breaks down, you won't be as tempted to swear. And when your friend or your spouse acts in the same annoying way as they've acted all all the times before, you won't respond in the insecurity of your heart by being hurt and disappointed, but you'll respond with a sense of security, knowing that you are completely forgiven, you are completely loved, and so are they. Knowing that the same Holy Spirit that guarantees your redemption guarantees their redemption, it allows you to respond with a different expectancy of heart and a sense of thanksgiving that allows difficult times, which are still very real, to roll off our backs a little easier. Paul goes on to another issue of the tongue talks about coarse joking, which is out of place. And basically what he's talking about there is the same thing we talk about when we talk about sarcasm. Sarcasm, we all, we've all heard of the definitions around it. The definition is a sharp, bitter, or cutting expression. In fact, the, the original word from which sarcasm comes is a, more of a pictorial word, and the picture behind it is the, the stripping off of the flesh or the biting the lips in rage. There's a, there's a popular definition that I've heard and a lot of people like to say. It's, it's the ability to insult idiots without them realizing it. We love sarcasm in our culture, don't we? Comedians and writers have made a living off of entertaining us with sarcasm for years, right? I mean, they'll say things like, how do you keep your husband from reading, reading your email? The answer is you rename the mail folder instruction manual. Groucho Marx is famous for saying, I never forget a face, but in your case, I'll be glad to make an exception. Mark Twain once wrote, he said, Reader, suppose you were, you were an idiot, and suppose you were a member of Congress, but I repeat myself. <laughs> we laugh and we enjoy sarcasm. So without being a killjoy, okay, without being a killjoy, would you allow me to lead you into considering Paul's encouragement to us that we inspect our sarcasm as a backdoor into checking the motivation and expectancy of our own hearts. Sarcasm, all too often we know, is used to prop up stereotypes and frustrations in relationship. We see it in Twain's congressional comment. I mean, he could be writing that today, right? We especially see it in the furtive and widespread battle of the sexes and conversations about marriage, don't we? We've all heard these. We've heard, if mama ain't happy, no one's happy, right? And we've heard, why can't a man be both good-looking and intelligent? Because that would make him a woman. We've heard, why are most jokes so short? So men can remember them. And we've heard things like, some women pick men to marry and others pick them to pieces. Or we've heard, a quiet man is a thinking man. A quiet woman is usually mad, right? Okay, so if you are here and you aren't married, let me ask you a question. How do those stereotypes make you feel about the hopes of a really, really happy marriage? And if you're here today and you're married or you've been married, how do those stereotypes that we just read, how many of those stereotypes that we've just read actually pick a real scab 
of pain in your relationship. I mean, certainly laughing about our weaknesses can be a really healthy thing, but sarcasm is typically not just laughing about our weaknesses. Sarcasm reveals cultural stereotypes. It reveals frustrations and pain, and it's used to send a painful message, a painful message while trying to be funny. Uh, Sarcasm is often referred to as anger hitting you sideways, and you never know when you can trust the person, whether they're being sarcastic or not, whether they're being direct uh, indirect with real issues. And sarcasm is reflected, reflected, uh, reflects on our expectation of relationships and our motivations and our attitudes of our hearts. So how can we expect to have good communication in a happy marriage when men, we prop up in humor the notion that all women are pestering and controlling? And women, how can we expect to have good communication in a happy marriage and see growth when in our humor we prop up the notion that all men are um, unthinking and unemotional oafs. See, it's easy to be sarcastic and laugh when things are not true. But the problem is most sarcasm is based on things that are at least partially true. And it's like throwing an elbow in the ribs of someone in a socially acceptable way. In fact, there's actually a, a site that collects sarcasm and, it, and its moniker on the head of its page is, is, since it is illegal to physically beat up people, we use sarcasm, right? But the problem, Paul says, is that sarcasm keeps us putting on the old self. And it doesn't allow us to take that old self off and put on the new identity. It creates cultural expectations and baggage that we all carry into relationships because we've all heard the jokes. And whether those issues are present in our relationship in a small way or an extreme way or not at all, we still carry that baggage into our relationships. I grew up severely, extremely sarcastic in my humor. And as time went on, I realized... So much of my sarcasm was based upon my need to feel superior, whether it was religiously superior or intellectually or morally superior. And God led me into moments where I began to realize that I was really the very ugly man and not the rabbi I thought I was. Worship team, go ahead and come. Paul invites us today to take a moral inventory. But it's not a moral inventory to get us to do right behaviors so much as It's a moral inventory to show us the back door into our hearts and allow our hearts to change so that our behaviors and our hearts are aligned. He does it so that we can invite the Holy Spirit and His power into our hearts to put on the new self because we can't do it all on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to come to help us live with great expectation, positive expectations of ourselves and of the relationships around us to help us be the kind of truly happy people, not just the people who do things to make us feel alive, to, to have that wonderful sex that we want, but that's just a momentary thing that makes us feel good, or to have that zinger or the wit or the humor at somebody else's expense, or, or to buy those things that give us a momentary feeling of being successful and good. He wants us to have hearts that are changed, that are truly content, truly transformed, truly kind, through and through, so that we can experience the beauty of holiness, the beauty of being treasures 
the beauty of being made in the image of God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would come to us. Lord, whenever we talk about stuff like this, it's really easy to get caught in the guilt of it. But Lord, I know that today you're here, and I pray that you lead each one of us past those behaviors that we all recognize we do to our hearts so that we can be truly free, that we can trust your love and your provision for us, that we can trust your goodness in the relationships. Lord, that we can trust your magnificent plan for our marriage even when it feels like it's in a rut at times. Lord, just come by your spirit now. And if there's something that you feel like God's convicted you of, then I just, I just, just breathe it under your breath now and just repent of it. Just ask him to come and show you your heart and show you what you want, what he wants you to put on as an identity that makes that issue no longer a problem for you. Holy Spirit, just come and do that. Thank you for your presence with us today. As we continue to, mo- to worship, just stay engaged with God and let him continue to speak to you. One of the p- most powerful prayer moments in my life was also praying with Randy after that meeting. If you're here today and you sense an area of conviction, uh, I'd prefer, I, I would suggest that you don't leave without praying with somebody about it talking about it, being honest, being open. Do the first thing Paul says us to do in the moral inventory. Be honest and open and pray and then let God's grace come and touch you. If you don't do it here, go home and do it. Okay? Let's follow up on it and let God speak to us. Let's let him change our hearts. If you're here today and uh, you've got a physical need, a job need, any type of need, we would absolutely love to pray for you. There will be a few people in the back there waiting to pray or grab a friend and pray before you leave. God bless. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.